How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code Bonus content. Thank you for your support. Nine, twelve, ten, twenty eight, two, twenty three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, and uh, I'm joined today, as on every Monday, uh, when we talk about things that have to do with intelligence and national security by former CIA operative and our friend Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. I'm very excited today because uh, we have a, a great guest who, who, you know, not only do I share a former place of uh, of work, but I think we also went to the same university. Wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> well, that'll certainly be the first thing we dive into. Our special guest today is Representative Alyssa Slotkin. She served the people of Michigan since 2019, representing first the 8th and now the 7th congressional district. She is now a leading candidate for senator from Michigan prior to her election. She was a CIA Middle East analyst, uh, worked during uh, alongside the U.S. military for three tours as a militia expert. She's held numerous positions in the Obama and Bush administration between tours and served as acting assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs at the Pentagon. Welcome, Congresswoman. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Uh, let's start, uh, as it happens, as we're taping this, I just watched you on Morning Joe. You did a great job. Uh, and most of the questions centered around Ukraine because of the um, assassination, apparent assassination of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, alongside of his number two there. Um, and so let me ask you a two-part question on that. And the first part is, do you think there is a strategic consequence in Ukraine as a consequence, as a result of um, what has happened with Wagner and Prigozhin. And then the second half of that is, how are you feeling about your colleagues in the Congress and their willingness to continue to support the effort in Ukraine? Yeah. Well, I would say first on, on your first question, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be with you guys. Um, I appreciate what you do. The the um, I think on on Prigozhin and and what it means for Wagner, it's like it's a little too early to tell. But I think the strongest indicator we have right now that there could be some impact on the battlefield is that you know Wagner is having to sign these pledges of allegiance to Putin, 
right? And I, I just, you know, it's, it's not like a normal military that's functioning in a healthy way, like wakes up one morning and has to sign a pledge of allegiance to reassert their commitment. So that to me is a, is a sign that there's questionable um, potential on what it means on the front lines. And we know that Wagner is, you know, has been on the front lines in some really important places, um, has been effective in a number of places in Ukraine, and has also felt under-supported by the Russian military, by Putin. You know, that's the, the origin of this um, uh, uh, Prigozhin story. So I think it's a little too early to tell. Obviously, I hope that similarly to, to what you see in the U.S. military or other militaries around the world, when you lose your number one and your number two, right? There is at least a period of chaos. There's a little bit of like, what are we going to do? What's the plan? Who's the leadership? What are they going to you know, do differently? So um, I would love to be able to take advantage of that and have the Ukrainians push, you know, punch forward um, in some places in Ukraine if we could do it. Uh, great. And as for the members of Congress, how, 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 how do you think support is faring? I mean, you know, look, I watched the Republican debate or the highlights from the Republican debate, and there were just cheers from the crowd when a bunch of those candidates said, no, I, I wouldn't continue support for Ukraine. And that I hear on the ground um, in some quarters. I hear it from the right. Frankly, sometimes, including this week, I get it from the left. Um, and so, you know, that to me means uh, what is going to be critical is to keep that sort of middle group of members of Congress from both sides of the aisle who believe that if we just stand by and allow Russia to roll over a place like Ukraine, that doesn't stop there. The, the value proposition is if we don't stop them and help the Ukrainians stop them there, we shouldn't be surprised when they go into other places in Europe, when they push forward in, in um, you know, potentially NATO areas. So, you know, I, I think that's the case we're going to have to make. But um, there's no way around it. I mean, uh, the Republican leadership, um, a number of Republican leaders are championing a pro-Putin stance that would hand at least parts of Ukraine right over to him. And, and that's something I just, I personally do not believe in. Yeah. Among the many extraordinary things in American politics today, uh, the emergence of the Putin wing of the Republican Party uh, certainly ranks high on the list. Ronald Reagan must be rolling in his grave right? He just must be appalled. For all those Republicans who always love to talk about Ronald Reagan, he was a peace through strength guy. And uh, th this idea that somehow there's a you know big part of the Republican Party that's stirring up pro-Putin, pro-autocrat sentiment, um, at, at the same time claiming that we have autocracy here at home, right? I don't think anyone's missing that, that um, um, juxtaposition. So uh, it's, it's unbelievable to me. So right. Mark? Yeah, uh, we're going to jump to uh, Afghanistan in a second, um, uh, Congresswoman, because I think that, you know, one of the things that that uh, a lot of us saw is the incredible efforts that you made um, in helping some of our allies get out. But but one quick thing on on Ukraine, and it's it's something that David and I have talked about a lot, is, and, I, and I still can't put my finger on it, is, you know, we have given, what, $43 billion in assistance. It's been extraordinary. Um, but it hasn't been everything. And there's been a lot of us, you know, uh, you know, former national security officials who have been kind of clamoring for for sending things like attack of missiles um, uh, and others. Yet you see some criticism, you know, anonymously in, in, in the in the papers from um, from DOD or other officials that, that that Ukrainians are not doing well. But in my sense, I, I get a sense also we, maybe we haven't given them all the tools. What are you hearing on the Hill about uh, uh, about attack -ums? And is there 
almost, uh, you know, maybe a caucus or, or, you know, like-minded officials, both on, you know, uh, in the, on the Republican side as well, who would, who could push the administration on this? Cause it's still something I can't seem to, to get my kind of hands around why we haven't given, which is essentially the last piece on the wish list. Yeah. I mean, I think there's been a group of us who have been pushing for this for over a year, right? I was in Ukraine last July of 2022. Um, and that was, um, Zelensky's big ask then, right? So that there, there's been a, a sort of, again, a group of Democrats and Republicans who, who are, I think, have tried to make the case that um, volume of weapons is good and important, but type of weapons is also really critical, right, to give additional battlefield advantages to the Ukrainians. So, uh, you know, I, I think that there is a group, um, and we unfortunately have gotten in this pattern of, you know, the Ukrainians come with their list, um, they come to Congress, they hit us, you know, they, the parliamentarians come and they, they, we, we all know each other very well now. People should understand that. People, I, you know, text back and forth um, uh, and they come and they say, this is what we need. And then Congress puts together bipartisan letters, starts to push, you know, the Department of Defense has hearings, et cetera. And then sort of slowly most things get approved. Um, I think there's a group of us who would just love to get out of that paradigm. Right. And just make some strategic decisions. And I certainly understood the judiciousness of the Biden administration in the early days of the war to make sure we understood, you know, kind of Putin red lines. But now I, I think it's a very different conversation. So I, I'm in support of them. I'm still in support of them. And before the ground freezes again and we really, you know, are in potentially a different phase of this war. Right. Good copy on that. And, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, as, as you noted, eventually we end up doing the right thing. It just takes a, a kind of a, a hell of a long time. Let me just switch to Afghanistan for, for just a sec, um, because 5 August, of course, was the, the second anniversary of, of the withdrawal. And, and I suppose, you know, one can make an argument um, that the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, perhaps helped us focus on Ukraine. But, but there's still some some unfinished business there and something that, of course, you and, and, and your office, um, but you personally have really worked on. I think for a lot of us who really cared about our Afghan allies, it was enormously appreciated. But give us a sense of, of your efforts to still um, try to get our Afghan allies out. And also, uh, uh, and, you know, looking back to your time uh, at the agency, you know, what, what do you sense is the, is the threat of terrorism today? Um, from Afghanistan? So look, I mean, at the two-year anniversary, I, I think um, you'd probably find consensus among most Americans, or at least most Michiganders, that they wanted us out of Afghanistan, but not like that, right? Not in that way, with those images that are going to last a generation. Um, and and um, uh, with a, a really insane process of getting both American citizens and then our Afghan allies out. Um, you know, I made the decision to work on, um, you know, we got over a thousand requests in our office. We focused on 120 Afghans um, that were affiliated with Michigan State or were in, you know, under real threat of being um, killed or jailed. Um, and we got them out. And I will be forever grateful um, to the network of people who helped us get them out. Um, a lot of retired military, a lot of, you know, Australians and Americans and South Africans, and then the Albanians who took them in on about five hours notice when uh, myself and a few others reached out to them. So um, that was a pretty um, uh, impactful experience for me, um, even as someone who worked in the government for a long time. And now those Afghans are in the United States. And the lion's share of my work on this issue is trying to get the Afghans, the vetted um, folks who are here 
um, some sort of uh, stable status, right? They're all on um, parolee or parole status, which is just not a, a, a tenable thing. We want them to be able to work. We want them to be able to go to school, all those things. Um, and then working on getting their families, right? Of course, many of the, the folks that I got out are single women, academics, people who were working in government, um, who had no future in Afghanistan and who are now in the United States by themselves. And of course, they want to get their families out. I, I think that, that um, um, you know, we have a commitment um, and should have a commitment to those who helped us um, and put their lives at risk to help us in our effort there. And those folks should come out. The longer term play with Afghanistan is, we all know, way more complicated. Um, and in the meantime, um, it, the only thing we can do is try to, to, to the best of our abilities, be vigilant about what's going on there um, and the sort of any potential rumbling of a return of an international terrorist presence. Um, that's really hard to do as an intelligence officer when you're not on the ground and you're not enmeshed in society. Um, you don't have a base there, um, but that's the best we can do. It's not great, um, but it is um, it is where we are. And I, I think the the those of us who came up um, as you know young professionals working on global terrorism issues, it's impossible to to just sort of decide we're done with that as a concept. That you know it's we're back to great power competition and. And um, um, you have to be able to walk and chew gum, focus on places like China and Russia, but also watch for any signs that an international terrorist group is looking to plot against the homeland or against Americans. Yeah, you know, at listening to that, it, it's, it strikes me that, um, of course, according to the FBI director and, and, and many other observers, the principal terrorist threats are domestic now. Um, and that doesn't mean we should ignore the ones that are overseas, but these are acutely felt by you in Michigan because we had the whole um, plot against uh, Governor Whitmer. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, where does that rank among the issues that are of concern? You're in a Senate campaign. Um, you are uh, an extremely well-respected member of Congress, but you have special um, skills, as Liam Neeson might say, um, uh, you know, in the national security area. What, what, as you go around Michigan, is resonating? Well, you know, to be honest, I mean, as a, as a congresswoman who represents Michigan, first and foremost, but who has a national security background, I live in the Venn diagram between national security issues and Michigan issues, right? I live in that middle space. And what people are first and foremost concerned about in in Michigan is the economy, the future of work, bringing manufacturing back to the United States. And that's where China, you know, and trade plays a huge role in our conversation here and how we've outsourced to China over the last 30 years in a way that came home to roost, you know, chickens came home to roost. So those issues, first and foremost, um, at the beginning of the war um, uh, in uh, Russian war and invasion attempt in Ukraine, there was a lot of support for Ukraine. Um, and I think still remains a high level of support um, uh, for Ukraine. Um, but I think globalization generally is something that's much more um, of, a, of a sort of factor here in Michigan um, than almost anything else. And on domestic terrorism, you know, Michigan, look, I tell people we didn't just flirt with extremism here. We had a full-blown, torrid affair, and then we did the walk of shame, and now we regret it, right? Right. 
and we're trying to work our way back. Um, but I, I, um, I, I think the, the responsibility that we have here is to focus on threats to Michiganders. We've had an increase in hate crimes. We've had an increase in anti-Semitic incidents. We've had an increase um, in um, uh, graffiti and in sort of those early indicators or those, those indicators that someone is climbing a ladder of escalation to violence. So luckily, we have um, an attorney general who's on this issue, right, um, who focuses on it. And we have laws that are stronger than other states, actually, or many other states, um, which I think is important. But there's there's no way around it that the climate in the country, the polarization in the country that we see every day affects a swing state like Michigan, where, you know, my dad, lifelong Republican, my mom, a lifelong Democrat, where we are mixed politically here. Our neighbors, my neighbors on both sides have very different views than me. Um, and it just exacerbates that tension between neighbors when you have our political leaders basically treating the other political party as an enemy, as an actual enemy. So um, that's what plays out here. Um, I think Michigan is, has turned an important corner. We don't like that extremism. Extremists don't govern well. Um, so, but it, there's no way around it. It's a huge factor in our climate here in Michigan. Um, yeah, I, 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 my wife is from Michigan. I go home to Michigan there a lot. Um, and I sense that, but I sense that also that that is a enormous, um, uh, kind of advantage, uh, for leaders like yourself, um, because you do, you are forced in a way that others are not to maintain contact with both sides. You, 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 you can't simply dismiss the right or the left and say, no, I'm only this lane. Yeah. And that is so important, right? Because I really believe in my core that we are best when we have two healthy parties who are debating the role of government in our lives. That is as American as apple pie. That makes us better. That makes the whole country better. Um, when we do it respectfully and with decency. But that's just not what we have right now. The system is not healthy. And I really believe that when one party gets out of whack, the other party starts to get out of whack because you don't have that tension and that um, checks and balances on things like spending or the debt or um, you know taxes or whatever. We need that debate. Um, but right now, that's not what we have. We don't have healthy debate between two healthy parties. We have zero sum like warfare through words that is sending the message to the country that you should treat people who don't agree with you as an enemy. And that is a danger in a diverse country like the United States. Is that true? Mark? So we have just a, a little bit more time left. I would be remiss um, in not, of course, uh, mentioning our, our alma mater. Um, both of us went to went to Cornell. I will I will ha ask you. I'm going to say one or two words and see if this resonates. Hot truck. Do you remember what hot truck was? Oh my gosh! I at Cornell, do not. It was the great French bread pizza truck that you could get in the middle of the night um, uh, as you're as you're near freezing there. But and, and the other point, just to just to kind of throw out there, you know, one of the things you that can see Mark really took away a lot from uh, yeah. his Cornell experience. We might have, yeah. we might have different had different experiences at Cornell. <laughs> Well, and so I have one more thing to mention. You know, we also uh, have a, a great friend in common in, in uh, one of your, your fellow colleagues in Abigail Spanberger. Yeah. And so she, she, she insisted that I ask you, quote, 
um, about your search for the strategic plan oh, and what does that really mean? And and that might be a perfect ending for uh, yeah. a, a wonderful show today. Well, um, Abigail <laughs> is one of my closest friends in Congress, so um, I, it's unfair that she has prepped you for this interview. But um, so, you know, I think you know, she and I and so many others, 63 others, came into Congress at the same time in 2018. We were that class right after Trump had won um, uh, you know, the largest class um, in a long time, most women, most young people, and importantly, the largest number per capita of members of Congress who had never run for anything before. It, this was our first elected office. So a bunch of people, you know, we have the guy who invented Talenti ice cream and Belvedere vodka in our class. We have people who were CEOs of solar energy companies, people who had to get things done on time and on budget in a prior career, right? So you bring a bunch of those people to Congress. Um, we all won. And um, I <laughs> um, I had been around Congress and had briefed them for years and years and years, but had never been in it. And I said, okay, great. We all just won. We flipped the house. What's the strategic plan? We all talked about infrastructure, the price of healthcare, and the price of prescription drugs. That's basically a, a, a sort of how a lot of us won. So. So what are what is the plan on those three things? And so I went around naively to leaders of the party saying like, okay, great. Nice to meet you. Like, what's the plan? And they're like, well, you know the talking points. And I said, no, no, not the talking points. But what are we going to do? What bills are we putting forward? In what order? What's the timeline? What's the measures of effectiveness? How do we know we're succeeding? What's the messaging plan? Like, and, uh, you know, because at the Department of Defense, where I was coming from, you don't go to the bathroom without a plan. I mean, you know, you do a lot of planning <laughs> reflexively. And so um, um, I kept going like kind of hat in hand to all these different power centers in Washington. And um, I was just it just didn't work. And someone teed me up in front of a room of 100 members of Congress to ask some leaders about this. Um, and it just was clear that while there's lots of tactical plans to get a bill through, for instance, and you know, no one's better at getting a bill through than our prior speaker, um, there wasn't a strategic plan. And it sort of blew my mind. And my fellow peers who had come from different professional experience, like obviously still talk about it and make fun of me about it. But I think it, for me, it highlights a big reason of why I want to go into the Senate, because that's not okay in a, a decade of political instability in the United States of America for where our country is. We just can't keep playing shallow defense, waiting for another shoe to drop. We need a plan and we need to play offense on protecting our rights and our democracy. So that's that's where it came from. Abigail was in the room when there was just this like uncomfortable silence um, when I asked where the strategic plan is and, and uh, you know, uh, four and a half years later, I figured um, if there isn't one, I want to be a part of making one. What a spectacular point and what a great place to end this interview. I hope we will be able to talk to you again on your uh, uh, road to the Senate. Uh, and as we address some of these issues going forward, uh, when you get to that strategic plan, we'd love to hear about it because uh, it's been a long time coming for this country. Um, and uh, I just want to say, I, you know, I marvel at the enormous quality of the leadership coming particularly from the women of the state of Michigan, uh, including Jennifer Granholm, 
including Governor Whitmer, Attorney General Nessel, Secretary of State Benson, and yourself, uh, and and there are many others. But it is a it is a remarkable concentration of leadership. We are very grateful you're there, and uh, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, that was great. This is the point in each podcast where we stop and we say thanks to everybody in the general public for listening um, and uh, tell them or remind you that uh, if you want to listen to the whole podcast, the bonus content, then you should be a member. Um, Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, and for only five bucks uh, per month, you can become a member. And that's 30% more content on all of our podcasts of which there are many, and there will soon be many more. Uh, so it's a it's a real bargain, and uh, now is a good time to take advantage of that bargain. Uh, uh, for those of you who are not members, we'll say goodbye right now. For those of you who are members, we'd ask you to stand by. <laughs>